Do you ever feel completely frustrated that nothing is happening about our environmental crisis? Well, Daniel Azule did. She did something about it. A common feature that I hear about people's work is that they feel like they aren't making as big a difference as they would like. And what this story tells us is that with some drive and passion, that's more within our control than it perhaps feels. As a citizen and an employee of Calvin Klein Jeans, Danielle felt that there wasn't enough being done for the environment. Starting with simple conversations with her colleagues, she was able to develop some traction with environmental programs at work. She went on to establish the sustainability program at Mark Jacobs International and is now head of corporate responsibility for L'Oreal USA, which is the biggest beauty company in the world. This is an episode for everyone who's involved with or wants to be more involved with sustainability at work, but particularly for you swanky corporate folk living at large in the private sector. Especially if you're involved in CSR, this one is an episode for you guys. An interesting part of this discussion was about how much impact the private sector can have, partly because there is such competitive drive in those private sectors that when companies put their minds to something, they go absolutely all guns blazing. That's particularly interesting as we're in the midst of COP26 in Glasgow, which will hopefully set some pretty ambitious sustainability goals that markets will need to respond to quickly. While letting markets lead us hasn't always been the most wonderful thing for us, seeing the market race towards being the first over the carbon neutral line could be a beautiful thing to watch. We also go on to talk about the need for positive talk around climate change, There is so much doomsday this and Armageddon that when it comes to environmental talk that it's actually quite easy for people to feel disengaged. Obviously, we need the facts, we need the truth. We shouldn't gloss over the fact that we are in more than a little bit of a pickle when it comes to climate change. But, and this is a big but, there is such a thing as empathy overload in humans. We can only take in so much before we feel hopeless to the situation. It's important to talk about the success stories of climate change and celebrating the wins, no matter how small. Finally, Danielle gives us her priorities for how we can get involved in climate action. Spoiler alert! One of her big ones is to get out there and vote. So do it. Now. Our New World is sponsored by the Millennium Alliance for Humanity and the Biosphere, MOB for short. The MOB is a grassroots effort providing a central meeting place for individuals and groups concerned about the greatest challenges of our times, which we like to call the human predicament. One solution that keeps slapping me around the face whenever I speak to guests is this need to create a community of people who are all interested in learning about these issues. The MOB is the epitome for one of those places where community is welcome. So, go and check out some of the blogs, some of the artwork, some of these podcasts, and the general community at mob.stanford.edu. That's M-A-H-B dot Stanford dot E-D-U. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is great to have you on. So first of all, because you've got a great story about how you got into sustainability. So can you tell us a bit about what you were doing before sustainability and how what led you into it? 
Yeah, sure. I think for me, sustainability is a way of channeling my environmental activism in a really tangible and concrete way. Um, I grew up in Miami and uh, Hurricane Andrew, I think was 1992. I was 12 years old at the time. And um, in my family home when the roof flew off my house, so I got to feel really firsthand uh, the impacts that extreme weather events can have on families and see sort of the process of rebuilding a life from scratch. And it's not easy, right? I mean, this is, we're seeing this happen more and more with wildfires in California. Um, Hurricane Katrina comes to mind as, as a good example of, um, you know, entire communities just decimated um, by uh, extreme weather. And sort of at that moment, I had liked being in the outdoors as a kid going to the beach and whatnot, but I never really understood that there was a consequence, you know, to our actions in that way. Um, and, and started to gain more of an understanding on the environmental or the, the human toll on the environment. It became like, uh, you know, save our seas and uh, save the whales, you know, kid as I, as I was growing up. And then I didn't really know how to turn that into a career. Um, and so I worked in the music industry. I did a degree in music and worked in the music industry for a couple of years out of college. And around this time, an inconvenient truth came out and I was still, you know, in my heart, obviously an environmental activist. And I just thought there's something more I have to be doing. Um, and I decided that I'd uh, go back to school uh, get retrained, get a master's in environmental conservation and education, and kind of take a leap of faith uh, and try and figure out how I could apply this activism mindset to the private sector, which was, you know, what I had been working on in for years. Um, I saw a really clear connection between, um, well, I'll say, also, this was a time when there was like no political movement on climate action. And I was feeling as a citizen, really um, frustrated by that and kind of looking for any open door um, where we could make progress. And at that time, uh, there was this sort of environmental ethic evolving, the sustainability ethic evolving in the private sector. And um, I kind of, you know, I don't want to say luck because I know people are like, don't say your career is lucky. You know, it sort of uh, um, downplays your commitment or the, all the things that I had to do to get retrained, which is true. Right. But it was like a, a right place, right time, yeah. right skill set um, for me where I happened to be working um, at a fashion company uh, called uh Calvin Klein jeans. I was working at Calvin Klein and um, working for the president at the time as her executive assistant. And she was really passionate about environmental issues. And I just sort of kept raising this like, hey, you know, this is, we're not having a good impact on the environment. Like, is there something, and she didn't even, you know, I think sometimes people take the things for granted because they're, we're doing them the way they've always been done. Right. And so we just don't, connect the dots that like, oh, actually like the way we procure this raw material or the suppliers that we use, you know, maybe we could be training them differently or helping them in a different way to have better environmental outcomes. And so, um, you know, she kind of gave me the open door to start 
having this conversation with the employees. Um, and I did, and there was a lot of interest uh, from people across the organization in sales and design, product development. Um, you know, people just wanted to, they were hungry for this information. They wanted to know how they could use their jobs almost as a way to make the world better. At the end of the day, I don't think anybody wants to go to sleep at night knowing that they had a worse, uh, you know, uh, um, impact on society. Yeah. Like that just isn't how humans, I will say for the most part, how humans operate, right? Um, and um, so I think when you give people the education and the tools, they sort of latch on to that. And, and that's kind of my approach with sustainability now um, and has been throughout my career. You know, from there, I was able to uh, move into the environmental um, team at PVH and then uh, started the sustainability program at Mark Jacobs. And now um, I uh, run the sustainability program and the corporate social responsibility program for L'Oreal in the US. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I just, look at this as sustainability and uh, corporate responsibility as a, a different way to apply my activism, you know, talking to executives who are making decisions every single day and giving them alternatives, you know, saying, did you ever think of this? You know, how about we do things like this? And I know from experience that the most of the time, you know, when you can present to them a better way to do something, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty supportive so yeah. i've been yeah i've been pretty lucky over well my yeah i know what you mean about the luck thing like it's kind of the right <laughs> place right time you've got to make the most of it though and you, you know you did well i think i love about that is there's there are two things to this because one is there are so many people in who you know who go into the private sector and they think right well you know i, I need a job i want a job i either go to sales or something like that but then they do have that kind of deep down burning desire of I want to make a difference or I don't like that the company is doing this. And what's really cool is that you, so you didn't like apply for a CSR role at Calvin Klein. You kind of just started talking to people and got a feel for whether that was the case in that role. Yeah, totally. I mean, I get the a question all the time from people who aspire to have this career is, you know, how do I do this or what company should I be working for? And I say, to them, well, what company do you work at now? And how do you actually use your, the role that you have now to be an agent for change to start this program and uh, really transform this company into a more sustainable version of itself? Because, you know, we can't all work for like the most sustainable companies out there. These jobs are limited. What we need to be doing is establishing the, the new departments and, and you know, um, and sometimes that, that can be an uphill battle. I've been in that position where you're starting from something from scratch and it's not easy, but you know, this is not an easy subject. We need everyone to be looking at their sphere of influence and figuring out how do they become agents for change uh, on this topic of uh, climate change and environmental sustainability and social topics too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's an important piece as well that the, I mean, a lot of people myself included, when I grew up, not now, but when I grew up, I was like, environmentalism, it must be different to the private sector and the businesses that are causing all the damage and stuff. But it's, no, it's, it's there. that's all part of it, right? That's all part piece of the puzzle is getting the private sector and other sectors kind of all on the same page and working together and doing the right thing. 
I think so. I mean, you know, when you look at how policy, at least patterns that I've seen in the United States of how policy is created at the national level is really a couple of different ways, right? Where different states have momentum around similar topics and then it becomes so unmanageable to have, you know, nine different ways, nine different ways to manage recycling waste, right? So the government has to come in, the federal government comes in and says, okay, this is the way we're gonna do it. Let's uniform it, make it uniform across the country. Um, but also, you know, everyone needs to find their voice. Citizen activism is a critical piece of that, right? Where uh, there's grassroots organizations and people who are working in collectives to share a unified voice and make sure that that's heard to their policymakers. But also the private sector is critical in that too. It's just another um, stakeholder group to feed in and amplify the fact that yes, we want you know environmental um, consistency. We want to mitigate climate change. We want smart policies to do that. You know, and so I, I think that um, it becomes harder to continue to delay acting on environmental policy from a governmental perspective if the citizens are aligned, if the private sector is aligned, if, you know, states and yeah. municipalities are aligned, like this is the perfect storm of, you know, scenarios to, um, to then create something that's more meaningful and more impactful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that because normally you hear the perfect storm of problems that we're having, but that's kind of like the perfect storm of solutions that we can have. Yeah. Everyone just going, come on, do something. That's cool. Yeah. Nudging. Yeah. Yeah. Nudge, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I ended up having a fair few peers go into like CSR just because it's that is essentially how the kind of rise of environmentalism happened in private sector businesses right I mean you would yeah more than I would but it seems like people started to kind of latch on to we need a CSR department and it started almost as an afterthought and it seems like it's quite mainstream now yeah I mean I hope so and and you know I think now that also the investor community is getting behind this and asking um, for companies that they invest in to demonstrate progress on what they call ESG and environmental, social, and government governance practices mm -hmm. um, is just helping to catalyze that even further. This stuff is very new, right? And so I think there's a couple of things that I know from experience about doing this for so long is that um, you know, well, when I started, I say for so long, right? I've been doing this for about 12 years now. Um, and when I started, if you had like four or five years experience doing this, you were a veteran in this space. So it is a relatively new um, job to have within a corporation. Um, but I think it's evolving. Um, and while, you know, a lot of people look at ESG and uh, the investment community and say they're not doing it right or it's not, it doesn't go far enough or what have you. The point is, is that we have to start somewhere and evolve from there. Um, and I think that's sustainability in general, right? I, a lot of times I think companies overthink this. We need a huge strategy that takes into account all aspects of our business and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, what's a one small step you could take right now? Like what, let's just start with, transitioning to renewable energy, right? Like just do that, figure that out yeah. and then, and then go from there. And I think that, you know, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way where you get 
employees engaged, they get excited about it. And then they'll sort of lead you to what's next. Oh, well, you know what? I really want to start a recycling program in the office. Oh, great. Go run with that. Right. And, and then you're making people feel empowered Mm. to be part of the solution. Um, It's a great way to foster culture change. It's also a great tool of, um, you know, uh, employee retention um, and, and helping employees feel emotionally connected to their workplace. Um, I tell people all the time that I think it's my job. Like everyone has these environmental behaviors at home, right? You, we all recycle, we all use uh, reusable uh, water bottles. Um, You know, we all do these things at home as like second nature. And it's my job to create a culture, a corporate culture where you feel like you can walk in the door and be that same person. I want you to bring those your personal commitments into the office and help us to transform the the culture of our company yeah. because it you know I'm one person in um in the biggest market for the largest beauty company in the world. Uh you know, we, I think we have 11,000 employees uh in America and I'm not going to be able to do this on my own, right? So I want to make sure that we're providing the tools and resources to make everyone feel connected to this program and and feel empowered by it. That what I was going to ask that actually because what I basically like what's a you know a day in the life of, but what, how did how would you describe the you know being the overseeing the um, CSR at L'Oreal? I mean the beauty industry is along there with you know the fashion industry for being okay. Well, this is making a big impact. But it seems to be doing really good things. L'Oreal, you know, you check out the website and you can see the sort of commitments on the website, which is awesome. Um, but what sort of things do you do every day just overlooking it? Because you talk about empowering people. But Yeah. What I love about this job is that no two days are the same. Mm. Um, you know, it is. And I'm someone who likes to employ creative problem solving, like figure out, OK, well, we got to solve this like. We are not oriented around the best way to do this today. How do we, what, what does that look like from here to there, you know, and how do we, uh, what are the steps that we need to take? What are the milestones that we need to meet in order to get to our end objective? Um, Sometimes I'm working with uh, employees to figure out new uh, initiatives to roll out internally. Sometimes I'm having meetings with, you know, nonprofit organizations who are leading on who are leading experts in certain areas that we need help with and want to utilize, um, you know, their uh, partnership and and um, leverage their knowledge and expertise on on what is the best way for us to go about solving a certain problem. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's about um, you know thinking really big and strategically about long term. What are what is what do we want this organization to look like 10 years from now and um, planning for that. So there's a lot of um, really strategic work and really tactical work that happens in my day, you know, working with brands, working with our C-suite executives to understand these issues, really get them bought in um, and um, fired up about, about the solutions uh, and you know, it's, um, it's a really fun job because of that. It's like, it, it's not boring. If you're looking for a not boring job, this is a great, not boring job. Good. That's a way to, that's like the perfect advert. (laughs) You're looking to not bored for the rest of your life. Do you see us? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I get it. Because like, I mean, environmental stuff is, is constant problems, right? Which is, it's also constant solutions. Um, you said something in there about what you want the company to look like in 10 years time. Uh, am I allowed to ask what the company will look like in 10 years time? Because again, it's yeah. so cool what L'Oreal, that L'Oreal is like pushing this as the biggest, yeah. like you said, the biggest beauty company in the world. Yeah, it's, you know, last year L'Oreal released our sort of sustainability 2.0 uh, strategy. We had one strategy that took us to the end of 2020. And this is really the next phase in our transformation that takes us to 2030. Um, and it lays out goals uh, for every aspect of our supply chain and our business uh, and actually sort of even evolves our thinking from managing and mitigating our own environmental impact to really understanding what are the major issues we're facing in the world today and how can we as a company be a catalyst to support that change faster. Mm. And so, you know, it's, um, we have, I'm not gonna bore you with that because then we have over like 30, you know, different KPIs that we're working for, towards. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're known for setting aggressive targets and ambition, tar ambitious targets, even when we don't have all the answers today, um, in the hopes that the world we're living in is going to change drastically over the next 10 years. Yeah. And as new innovations come online, as new science emerges, that we're able to integrate that into our strategies and solutions uh, and really push ourselves forward uh, cool. as as fast as we can yeah That's so cool. yeah it's it's it is i will say when we released this i was really excited because it's really one of the most ambitious corporate responsibility sustainability programs i've seen um and just to be a part of it is awesome yeah i bet i bet yeah. and is it does it link to the most recent i suppose research is the wrong word but the most recent targets of things like the sustainability development goals or is it mainly kind of trickle down from, from policy, from US policy or, or state policy? No, so we're a French company. That's where our headquarters yeah. is. So, you know, a lot of this is really, uh, thankfully, because, you know, the EU is much farther along than the US on a lot of these things. And so it's really pushing us in the US to go farther, okay. which is awesome. Um, uh, you asked me a question and I totally forgot what it was. It was uh, no worries. It was about whether you kind of are influenced by higher level policy, like UN level policy that kind of trickles down or is oh, it yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're um, a company that's really rooted in science and, and um, you know, we've been around for over hundred years and um, really are, we pride ourselves on like scientific innovation as a really key piece of uh, the products that we make and sell. And, um, you know, we also support um, other uh, certain, um, we have this whole program called For Women in Science, which supports women in STEM um, with grant funding at, uh, to support research. Female scientists get uh, less grant funding um, and trying to equalize that gender imbalance yeah, yeah. Uh, in the STEM fields. And so for us, a natural extension of our sustainability work is orienting around something that's super scientific where, uh, so there's this um, school of thought that's the planetary boundaries methodology. It's the foundation for um, 
the science-based targets co commitments that you may have heard of. It's kind of wonky and in, in, in the really sort of hardcore sustainability uh, space, but companies are starting to to set what we're calling science-based targets for their direct and indirect emissions mm -hmm. uh, to make sure we're managing all of our emissions across our entire value chain from you know, harvesting the crops that of the raw material ingredients that go into our products to end of life uh, product disposal when consumers are done with the products and, and every step in between yeah. transportation, logistics. It's incredibly complicated and incredibly scientific. And we've taken this, um, but it's based on sort of what is this safe operating space for humanity? The, the planetary boundaries methodology yeah. Uh, eval evaluates the safe operating space for humanity across a number of environmental uh, criteria, carbon emissions being one of them. And so we've taken this sort of scientific approach and applied it to our other goals as well. So uh, water, biodiversity, natural resources, and on and on. And so, um, you know, all of our goals are really rooted deeply in science. Yeah, it sounds, I've got to say, okay, so just listening to kind of the business side of it which is not where I've come from I you know I've, I'm in education and I'm very, always really interested to talk about the, the business and what that what's happening in that side it always sounds I think passionate is probably the wrong word but it always sounds like as soon as a business is on board they're like bam let's do this as well as we can like let's we're going to nail climate change or we're going to do everything we can like we're going to sort out the supply chains we're going to do and it's almost like I don't know if it's competitive. I don't know if the CSR departments compete with each other, but. No, no, I think it's like interesting where, you know, you can take what's naturally um, uh, like part of the DNA of any corporation, right? Which is to, to win and to turn a profit and people are competitive and they're looking at this, um, you know, they want their business to be number one. And so when you take these people who are already oriented around this mindset and you're like, let's solve climate change, they're like, let's solve it all the way, you know? Yeah, and yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, there's, it, it, it's the opposite of um, the public sector in a way where everything is so slow. Yeah. You have to wait for policy to pass to, to do like many meaningful things. And that can take years. I mean, it can take a, a decade or more to get enough support to, to pass meaningful policy on things mm -hmm. like this. Um, but in the private sector, we don't have those constraints in the same way. Yeah. In, in fact, our challenges are when we want to go farther than um, the policy infrastructure has enabled us to. And, and that's where you are like held back by policy. And that's an interesting tension, right? On like going back to the conversation around corporations as a stakeholder, corporations have made these public commitments to their investor community, to um, consumers, to, uh, you know, all the stakeholders. And it's not easy once that like, you know, can of worms is open you can't put them back in right yeah. it's like you have to meet those goals and you know i'm interested to see a lot of corporations are going to have this problem where there's going to be a tension of where we are today in terms of our policy as an enabler to meet our sustainability goals and how do you resolve that yeah i don't know the answer to that yet but it should be interesting it should be i mean it's a really interesting point as well yeah because i i think i thought a couple of years ago, I, I, don't quote me on this, but I think it was Shell who said we're going to be, you know, either carbon neutral or carbon zero by 2050. Mm. And I was just thinking, okay, let me just get my head around that. 
that's total, like literally a U-turn into the other 360 of where, you know, <laughs> 180, whatever. But as soon as they announced that, there must have been people thinking, okay, that's a big statement. We're going, we need to invest in renewables. Like we really need that. That's where the world is going. And as soon as you've got the financial backing, I, I well, like you said, it's an interesting point. Like how far do you kind of let markets carry this and let corporations yeah. carry it? You know, I'm not really sure the answer on that. I, no. I, I, I feel... I feel hopeful and conflicted at the same time sometimes, you know, because I see so many corporations doing this work in such a concerted way, but there's such a, um, I will say like a global, like lack of alignment in really key areas. Like you're saying, it's like so many corporations are going carbon neutral and really buying renewable energy and creating that demand that then the, you know, fosters the supply and uh, helps the expansion of renewable energy. And then I just read yesterday that since the Paris Climate Agreement, bank uh, investment of fossil fuel um, drilling is like at an all-time high. And so it's, I, you know, on one hand, we're doing really good as a world. And on the other hand, we're still like, you know, not holding the right people accountable, yeah. not really, um, you know, and so we have to make sure that at some point we go to where the hardest part is and we really sort of transform that. I, I don't know what the answer is. I feel like, um, you know, I read that yesterday. I was feeling a little bit bummed out by it because, you know, as you can imagine, as a person doing this work, you yeah, want to, yeah. you know, you want to, sort of at the end of the day, be able to point to something and say, okay, like I didn't solve climate change, but I at least know that I woke up every day and I tried my best, you know? And um, and sometimes you're battling so many counter forces that it's, it can be difficult. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the lovely things about, you know, talking to you, talking to other people like you on the other episodes is it does feel, my sense and one of the reasons I wanted to start this was because everyone I think feels a bit overwhelmed and you're mm. constantly met with problems. And this is just a lovely thing to be able to kind of jump into and say, right, but we've got solutions and this is happening and this is working. Um, I, I think we are like constantly talking and hammering people over the head with like how bad it's gonna be. Yeah. And it, there is a fatigue that is gonna set in with people who are just paralyzed by fear. Absolutely. You know? and, and we have to be careful that we don't push people towards that. There, you know, there's new sort of terms that are evolving, eco-anxiety, and um, I think it's like a, or like climate anxiety, you know, and, and making sure that people aren't just understanding how bad things can be, but also feeling empowered on the solutions. And I think sometimes we offer people solutions like, you know, um, switch to, plastic water bottle or you know reusable water bottles or um you know recycle things that are like so close to home mm. that we're losing the opportunity to galvanize people around this issue in a way that's actually meaningful right where it's yeah. like okay you know i never people are always like what are your top tips for better environmental behavior and it's never like you know don't use single use plastic although that's like you shouldn't do that but like everyone should know that by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think my tips are more along the lines of, you know, decarbonizing your life, like switch your utility to uh, renewable energy. Sometimes it's just like a 10 minute call to your electric company and just saying, can, do, can I add on a $5 premium or whatever? Some of them have like these programs you can pay into to source your energy from wind or solar. Oh, that's cool. um, yeah. Or uh, another one that I do that people don't think about is your bank. Um, don't bank with big banks that are supporting fossil fuel companies uh, expansion. You know, I have a, I bank with a tiny small bank um, on the West coast of America called Aspiration. And they have a fossil, you know, their whole thing is, is about um, not investing in fossil fuels. And that's really important to me that where I bank, they're not using my money to support things that are misaligned with my own values, yeah. you know, um, things like voting, uh, you know, even in the US, we have such low voter turnout mm. that these things that are existential threats to humanity wouldn't exist if people just voted in higher numbers, you know? Um, and so, you know, these are what we think as like, or these things that we take for granted maybe because we've, the, the problem seems so big yeah. and the solutions. Another one I like to tell people is like, just go outside go outside, eat your lunch under a tree, uh, understand the positive environmental and, um, and uh, sorry, the positive uh, emotional or psychological and uh, uh, physical health benefits that come with being outside, have create an environmental ethic of, of someone that appreciates the outdoors because if you appreciate it, you're gonna wanna protect it. Um, you know, that those are the kinds of things that I think are like, really useful and and creates a long-term foundational cultural change around these topics um, and perhaps make people feel more connected to a bigger solution than, um, you know, not using plastic grocery bags. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think sometimes we just put too much of an emphasis on sort of individual incremental behavioral change um, when we have to recognize that the forces we're going against are really big. And so um, we have to make sure to change our behavior in the most meaningful areas. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's, you know, energy, renewable energy and, uh, you know, pol political will and uh, a really sort of a, an environmental connection that's long lasting within you and your family yeah I love those I because I, I mean actually you are I think along again along with you there have been everyone has said like just go outside just go outside and like look you know don't look at the sun but just put your face up into the sun sit on the grass and enjoy it and yeah it's but it's not just yeah like you said it's not just that I'll try and reiterate those points at the end because they were brilliant um and that's what we sort of talk about is like what can people do yeah and it's true that so many of the messages that we get it's true, that, <laughs> hitting, I'm hitting this for fun. Uh, it's true that so many of the messages that we get are like, go vegan, stop using plastics. And then it kind of stops. And unless you really dig into the details, you know, like I've not heard, I, I'm lucky in that I've got people around me who tell me this stuff. And I, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, talking to people like you who know about this stuff, but otherwise you don't get told messages like, yeah, call your bank up and make sure your banking are you know doing and make sure your electricity comes renewable. So those are all really good tips that aren't too difficult. Mm -hmm. And yeah, all you hear about yeah. is going vegan. 
Right. And, and look, I think those have merits, mm. you know, but, um, but at the end of the day, I just think we, that, that list can't be like five actions long. There's a, we've been doing those things for a decade now and we're not making progress. And so it's not about doubling down on those. It's giving people other different ways to engage. I think on the topic of going outside more, um, there was a study done on uh, American behaviors and engaged with engaging with the outdoors and we're spending 98% of our time indoors like we're evolving to be an indoor species yeah like that's it's really crazy. scary you know where how and then how just on that topic like how do you how do you uh get people who are spending 98% of their lives indoors to feel connected with the environment you know yeah. and and to make conservation a priority and um you know some of the most magical times I've had are just like bird watching you know where I'm like oh oh there's a bald eagle that's cool yeah you know yeah, yeah. like I mean you know but you have to be outside to like have those experiences For sure. um and I, yeah I think also um I, I read another study that said one of the best things you can do to stop climate change is to just talk about it talk to your friends talk to your family um because there is uh, data to suggest that when people don't hear about climate change regularly, they don't think it's an issue. Mm. And um, we know that media coverage dedicated to climate change is really low. Um, and so if this is an issue you care about, just talk to talk to people about it. And it doesn't have to be like, by the way, we're all going to die in 20 years. Like, let's not, let's yeah. not make it ter- terrifying. But, you know, hey, you know, what I did today was I, I changed my... I, my electricity to renewable energy, you should do it. It's, yeah. It takes 10 minutes. That, you know? That's really cool. That's really important, I think. It's not because everyone thinks oh, I've got to talk about it. So I've got to, it's going to be heavy. Oh God, I can't be bothered to bring up climate change at dinner. And you're like, but talk about the cool things. Like talk about what you did that day exactly or a product that you found that's renewable or sustainable or something. Yeah. Or like, what's your favorite, you know, what's your favorite outdoor memory, you know, or what did you do as a kid outside that you really loved, you know? Um, for me, I, I was lucky growing up in Miami. I went to the beach all the time. Yeah. So, you know, that's like a part of who I am um, is that. So, yeah, I think it's just everyone has that. We just don't make it a priority to talk about it. Yeah. And I think it would go a long way if we did. Yeah, absolutely. Just moving back to beauty. It is a big industry in terms of its impact on the environment, or it has been historically anyway. What can consumers do, people buying beauty products, what can they do to, um, well, reduce their impact? Can they, because I know, you know, on food, sometimes you see that they've got labels, sustainability labels saying this is sourced sustainably. Do beauty products have a similar thing? Can you look for that on the back of packaging? Yeah, interestingly, there are a couple of labels that are applicable to the beauty industry. Um, Amazon just launched this program called Climate Pledge Friendly. It's a kind of a mouthful, but what it's trying to do is really good. Um, it's identified, I think, like 18 different uh, consumer-facing certifications um, that can help consumers navigate uh, this sort of sustainable product space. One of them that I love is uh, Cradle to Cradle certification. Mm-hmm. Why I love it is it's a what we call a multi-attribute certification. So rather than just 
um, certifying products for one aspect like non-GMO or organic or fair trade, it actually looks at products and evaluates them for five uh, key criteria. And they're all things that I would look at as a consumer if I was making these purchasing decisions. So um, the first one is the ingredients, understanding what are the ingredients and um, ensuring that they're the safest, best ingredients used in the products. The second one is the packaging. Um, you know, and the packaging recyclability. Uh, the third one is the manufacturing practices as it relates to renewable energy and carbon emissions. The fourth is uh, also manufacturing, um, but water stewardship. You know, are the factories yeah. using water in a responsible way? And the fifth one is social fairness. And it's one of the only certifications out there that talk about the environmental and social impact in the same certification. I think, you know, sometimes we get so siloed in one or the other when really we should be looking at both um, because, um, you know, I think we, we talked about this before, but when we were, one of the, to me, the like biggest communication fails of the past 60 years in the environmental movement has been the save the planet uh, sort of framing yeah. where we're not saving the planet here, we're saving humanity, right? So, so we have to start looking at these environmental um, criteria and applying them to the lens of the people in the local community as the people who they're going to impact. Um, so Cradle to Cradle is one great certification that I love. And, and over the past two and a half years, we've really been working to scale that certification uh, within the L'Oreal uh product portfolio. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in third party validated uh, and verified certifications. I want you to believe we're doing something not just because I say it, but because um, some of the most credible people in this space also reinforce that message with certifications. And so, you know, that's something that I think um, companies can do more uh, of to, to make sure consumers understand what the environmental um, impacts, but also benefits could be of purchasing certain products over others. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have developed this tool uh, that we launched in 2017 called SPOT, the Sustainable Product Optimi Optimization Tool. There's a lot of acronyms. Yeah, in yeah, uh, there was, that's great. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, this is a product that we use in, um, the development stage of our, of our, a tool that we use in the development stage of our products, where we're evaluating and scoring every decision that's made about our products with the um, hope and intention that we can demonstrate an improvement every time a product is relaunched. And that happens about every three years. Okay. Um, and we've improved, uh, I think in 2019, we were at like an 85% improvement for our product portfolio with Spot. And that's huge. This is a tool that we didn't create on our own. We created it in partnership with Ernst & Young and Qantas, uh, who's what, Qantas is one of the leading uh, consultancies who help corporations um, measure their impact, develop the tools to measure their impact. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, so we're trying to, figure out now, like, how do we externalize this? What's the right way to externalize it? And uh, Garnier France actually started to externalize some of this information um, last year. And if you go to the Garnier France website, 
and click on a product. And if you speak French, lucky you, I don't speak French. So I'm kind of just like looking around, but scroll through and you'll see sort of a drop down that says something about uh, environmental and social impact. Um, and with that is gonna come uh, an infographic where you can understand the carbon emissions, the water uh, footprint, mm. uh, the social footprint of the products. Um, and we're looking to roll that out in the US uh, actually later this year. Um, across all of our rinse off products. Mm. And then and then we'll, you know, scale it from there. But I think this th that's two examples of things that we're trying to do to build more trust and transparency with our consumers to help them understand that, you know, we're not just saying we're doing this, we're trying to give you the tools to make better decisions as well. Yeah, I think especially when you make like self accountability, that's a really good sign when you're not suddenly being held to be accountable. You're saying, no, no, no we need to, you know, we need people to check us out. That's cool. Yeah, uh, I want to just ask one more big, like big scale question, because you you touched on it there is, is the measurement of how your sorry, the measurement of your goals. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about earlier, when the private sector kind of gets involved or they they, you know, set their mind to something, it's often a really good thing. But one of the, well, and one of the, one of the issues that keeps coming up is like, how do we move away from traditional capitalism, communism as our two main economic systems? And one of the ways is to kind of internalize the environmental externalities, right? And how do you measure the impact on the environment? And it just kind of occurred to me while you were talking about that, that the private sectors must, they're probably going to set the standard for that. They're probably going to set the standards for like how we do measure it because everyone's trying to you know, put values on the environment and talk about ecosystem services. Is there something that L'Oreal does to say what impacts we're having on the environment, to, to measure the impacts that they're having on the environment and to say, yeah. right, well, we've improved from last year. This is how oh, we yeah. yeah, totally. I think that's the nature of all of this work is to be able to every year publish a, a CSR sustainability report and show really transparently how we've improved, what we learned, um, and the data to back that up. The data is always uh, audited by a third party um, uh, firm. Um, so, you know, it's, I think public companies take great lengths to make sure that the, the improvements that they are making and the investments that they're making are measurable and quantifiable, and they're also validated uh, and verified by um, one of the big, you know, accounting firms, um, Deloitte or Stan Young. That's in, in typically, who, yeah, that's typically who people use. And um, I think, you know, it, it's interesting, um, sort of this space and rooted in the idea of like conscious capitalism or what does a capitalist system look like that really integrates the negative externalities. There's a good book and she actually has a TED talk, uh, Kate Rayworth. I don't know if you've yep. ever heard of her. Don't yeah. economics, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And she, I teach a class at, at Columbia and I have that as part of my, um, as part of my curriculum as sort of a reimagined capitalism where, you know, it's not, just measured based on growth, right? We're measured, yeah. we set other criteria um, because we're people at the end of the day, right? We have to be able to sort of measure what's, to get a temperature check on what, are we a happy society? If not, that has to matter in sort of like the economic 
decisions and economic policy that's being made um, to be able to foster that and, and further that. Uh, Caring, I think in 2010, uh, released the first environmental uh, profit and loss statement. Um, and it was quite cool and innovative at the time. They were trying to demonstrate sort of the, you know, an environmental PL. What are the negative externalities? How are they? And that kind of like drove the choices that they were making on their sustainability strategy. Mm. Um, it, I don't know if it really like took off or sort of where it stands now, but the idea that we're looking at economics as a driver to transform uh, our, you know, environmental and social work, I think is really critical because. You know, I know a lot of people who are advocating for um, a completely reimagined economic system. And that's fine if, you know, if that's what you want. But like, we can't wait to do this work until we all figure out what that is. Like the the issues are too pressing. There's too many people suffering uh, the consequences of decades of bad environmental behavior. And we have to be able to do this work within the system that we have today and work on making the system better um, in the short term until people way smarter than me figure out what that system is reimagined us. us. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of people, I think there's, we're sort of in a golden age of entrepreneurship and people looking to start things, but not necessarily knowing what they can do uh, to have an impact. But one of the previous episodes was um, to do with startups and I was just wondering what you might recommend as someone who works heavily in CSR, what you might recommend to people who are starting up with something, but CSR is not necessarily the priority, you know, being, I mean, you can, you, it's a blank canvas when you start something, right? But if you might be stressing about my packaging supply chain or, you know, that's not sustainable or I have to use this plastic or something, what do you going to recommend for startup companies to do in terms of establishing CSR straight away or to focus on? Yeah, there's not solutions for everything right now, right? Yeah. So companies can only be as sustainable as their suppliers and as the solutions that exist. So, you know, I think startups, first of all, have a really important role to play in terms of setting the bar higher. But I also think that they have to be realistic in terms of what they can actually accomplish as a startup. I think this goes back to like the previous, what we said previously about like, don't overthink it. You know, what can you do? Focus on that. It doesn't have to be perfect as long as you have a plan for overtime, continuous improvement. That's what sustainability is about. It's a commitment to to continuous improvement because we don't have all of the solutions today we really just have to make sure that we're committed to this constant uh, evolution um, so that when new solutions come online, we integrate them and move on, you know, and move on to the next one, move on to the next one. So I think startups are in a, a really good, uh, unique position to be able to sort of drive a more activist conversation, perhaps. Um, and, uh, but I also just, you know, see sometimes. Um, startups who make really big claims. Um, and then, um, you know, I, as someone who's been doing this for a while, I just know that they're probably not able to um, 
live up to them. So if you're going to make a claim, make sure you can live up to it. If I think that also sustainability is really good way to force you to think about business in a different way. Um, so, you know, if you cannot find um, a factory that pays people a fair wage and, you know, all of the things uses sustainable materials, um, you know, I don't know, maybe start one, you know, yeah, have that yeah. be part of your business strategy. Um, so, you know, I think there's different ways to do this, um, but um, as long as it's a priority and that comes forward yeah. and you're really sort of holding yourself to that same high standard of measurement and transparency and communication in a credible way, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just start where you can. Yeah. I feel like in a, in a way, my, I mean, so last thing I ask you might actually mirror that, but I was going to say, do you have anything you, you would, because you talked about some solutions, some really interesting kind of alternative solutions, what people can do behavior wise. Um, but is there anything that you'd like to say to the listeners or to encourage them to do that you think is kind of not, not a silver bullet, there's no silver bullet, but almost like a priority that you'd recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my top priority is just to like figure out how to decarbonize your life as much as possible, you know? Um, and I think switching to renewables um, and switching banks uh, to support companies or a banking institution that's not supporting fossil fuel investment. I think those are two really big things mm. um, and vote and vote like your life depends on it. Cause it actually does, yeah. you know? Yeah. Awesome. That's wicked. <laughs> Thank you. I also want to clarify for everyone who's watching this or just reiterate how wicked your background is on a Friday. Oh, yeah. It is Friday. <laughs> yeah, I needed, you know, it's Friday afternoon. So I have a hot pink glitter background for those who are listening. And, um, you know, that's basically my mood. It, this is my... Uh, my mood right now. We'll try and make that like <laughs> the background of the graphics or something. I'm so oh, jealous. Oh, good. <laughs> awesome. I'll send Thank it you so to much. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do, please. Thanks so much, Danielle. Thanks so much, Max. Take care. Have yeah. a good one. Well, there we have it. All the solutions to the world problems done. I jest, of course. But how wonderful and brilliant is it that we can listen to the opinions of someone who is really directly involved in changing the corporate world because beauty and the cosmetics industry has a massive carbon footprint there are lots of unsustainable practices going on there just like in a lot of other sectors and it's really inspiring to have a conversation with someone from within the industry who is looking to tackle that you know it's not necessarily a case of keeping your enemies closer but it is a case of someone who's saying well this isn't good enough so what are we going to do to change Danielle mentioned some really key points there, like voting, which we all need to do. We all need to do that in order to make change because that's why democracy exists. She talks about changing our banks into banks that invest in green energy, changing our energy suppliers, which just take little phone calls. Yes, it is a bit of an inconvenience, but a morning's worth, worth of research and then the actual phone calls themselves those are the little things that once you've done them they feel good and also they're sustainable they're long term you've done it now okay and you get into a habit and again she talked a bit about sort of the little things celebrating the positive stories around climate change not just focusing on the negatives if you feel so inclined or you've been inspired by this conversation or if you have a topic that you want to talk about or even we've had a couple of people 
that are guests, that have been guests on the show, and they've got in touch themselves. So if any of those things appeal to you, don't forget to get in touch at max at mobonline.org. That's M-A-X at M-A-H-B online.org. We'd love to hear from you. Again, this is about creating a bit of community. It's really, really fantastic hearing from people, hearing people's stories, and continuing this conversation. Thank you for listening. Till next time.